we are asking, actually we're demanding that our parental rights not be ignored. That's the voice of Rhonda Williams, a courageous Newport News mom who, along with a crowd of other mama bears, showed up at the state capitol to challenge lawmakers to respect their rights. Plus, we discussed the video that went viral of a transgender activist ramming into the March for Life participants last week. We'll give you our take on that and more. Welcome to Speak Up Virginia, equipping you to speak up on the life, family, and freedom issues that matter most to you. From the Family Foundation, I'm your host, Candy Cushman, with our president, Victoria Cobb. Welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us for Speak Up Virginia. Well, Victoria, before we get started today in our topics, I did want to give you a chance to comment a little bit on the March for Life, Virginia March for Life. I know we're going to be actually bringing some clips. You know, next week we didn't have them quite ready yet, but we're going to be able to share some of those moments. But just wanted to get kind of your take from just that exciting event last week. Yeah, this was a phenomenal event. I mean, it is every year, but this was the sixth one, and it was just outstanding. So <clears throat> it looks like we had about at least 3,500 people there. That's sort of the official count. It's hard to know whether that's accurate, because I would say it looked like a, just a ton and tons of people came out. And what's great is they come from all over, right? So like you had people from every corner of Virginia. I saw our Bristol folks re <laughs> represented, which I thought was impressive, because it yeah. takes a little bit to get out there. We had great weather. Um, it's not always great weather in February. Yeah. We um, are very thankful to God for letting that happen. And then, of course, you get all this participation from our statewide leaders, right? So this was, um, again, an opportunity that the governor stepped into and marched right alongside our marchers, and the attorney general joined him, so both of them kind of leading the march. And then at the rally portion, um, Lieutenant Governor Winsom Sears spoke and um, was just I mean, just got really emotional. And yeah. um, I think she was really impacted by all the legislators that came and stood behind the podium um, just to be there and be present and counted among those who are going to fight for the unborn. So yeah. it was pretty fantastic. Yeah. And there, it's really touching to see people of all ages, a lot of diversity in the crowd. It's It really is just lifts your heart up to just see one another, you know, pro-life defenders from all across the state. But also it's so encouraging that I think after so many years of this, this is our sixth annual um, that it's really an anticipated and respected event. It's getting great media coverage. Um, so I think this is something we can build on it, and it's especially good timing to be able to have that momentum. Yeah, and I, th yeah. I think we have to give a shout out to the schools that came out. Yeah. I mean, tons and tons of schools, the, the cadets from Benedictine, so they're all in their uniforms and just all the different ages. And then also to the Speak Up teams, um, yeah. our grassroots teams that came out and held banners and all that. So um, thank you to everybody that um, really took the day and and made it just such a special day. And it got great coverage. So I think the the message was heard. So that, yeah. that's really wonderful, too. Well, you know, on a note related to the whole life issue, we did have a momentous court decision out of Alabama. And, you know, we've got these headlines. Here's the Washington Post headline that's referring to shock, anger and confusion. Is that how you're feeling, Victoria? I mean, I am shocked, but not in a confused or bad way. So let me just kind of break down what this case was. So this is the Alabama Supreme Court recently ruled that frozen embryos can be considered people under the state law, that if you destroy someone's embryos, you're actually able to be sued for wrongful death. And so, um, yes, it's definitely sending shockwaves. This is all over um, the news if people are watching right now. And it's because um, the pro-abortion crowd is really kind of freaking out about it. Um, but the ruling basically just, I mean, it asserted that unborn human beings are children regardless of whether they're located in or out of the womb. 
All right. Well, before we get into kind of the impact of this case or some of the facts behind it, I do think it's important to acknowledge that this didn't start out. This is not your typical pro-life case. It started out completely different. Yeah, I think people need to understand because this is not really being discussed when they discuss this case. This is actually three couples who were um, part of the in vitro fertilization process. They had frozen embryos and basically someone within the facility actually accidentally destroyed their unborn children. Yeah, and it sounds so, like maybe someone entered when they weren't supposed to yeah, or something I, like that. Yeah, yeah but it was an accident. The bottom I guess. line is there was an accident. Those embryos we would call children were destroyed and so these are parents that are suing because their children are gone and so I just that's just not being discussed and so um, they're looking for relief and they got a favorable decision an 8-1 decision out of the Alabama Supreme Court one of the justices writing for the majority said Alabama law is really clear a child is a child before and after birth yeah and of course I couldn't help think of that Dr. Seuss line a person <laughs> is a person no matter how small um, but I think it, this is really fascinating. You know, I've been thinking about it a lot because you have this situation where they're saying that in the embryo, that genetic material is all there to develop into a human being. And so then it is a human being either, you know, whether it's in the womb or outside the, the womb. So it's a human being, whether it's in the womb or in a Petri dish, right? So our, we're really getting back to when life begins here. I mean, that's the crux of this whole matter is that we're really talking about when does life begin. And we have always said, the pro-life community has always said, it starts at conception. When a fertilized egg exists, we have all, everything that is needed for that child except time and maturation. And so that has always been the position. This is causing folks to really think deeply because a lot of folks really haven't done the deep dive thinking about in vitro fertilization and what that means. Um, and it's it's requiring a hard look at the industry as well. So we understand how important this issue is to so many people who struggle with fertility, right? So we got to start with a place of compassion that there are um, parents and these parents, we should start with compassion for these parents who mm -hmm. lost their children, but for other parents who um, really have struggled with this, um, obviously in vitro fertilization, looks like a great path because you you know you can work through that some of the challenges that you have the challenge is the industry what they do is they create they, they encourage people to create so many children mm -hmm. and unfortunately they often aren't then ultimately implanted in a woman's um, womb and so ultimately we end up with because of just the nature of the way they're doing this a lot of these embryos that are essentially frozen on a shelf so to speak I mean that's um, mm -hmm. and and that's the real challenge so people are a little panicked over what this means because maybe they haven't thought about that this is life, right? So maybe for some folks, mm -hmm. they really haven't spent enough deep dive. Um, and of course, the industry is reacting aggressively, right? So we have um, fertility clinics in Alabama instantly shutting down. Um, so we need to talk about that a little bit because um, yes, they're dealing with human life. They don't wanna be at risk of lawsuits. Um, this is this it asks the question how recklessly are they handling human life right now that they have yeah. to shut down right hospitals every day yes are hospitals, they having best practice hospitals and doctors handle human life every day yeah and they can be sued for wrongful death but we have parameters we have all sorts of regulations around that we have um liability caps there's a lot of things built around the idea that you're handling human life apparently in our fertility clinics in certain states we haven't really and i can say that's probably true here in virginia we haven't really built a structure that says you're handling human life let's handle with care and so right. they instantly shut down they don't need to shut down we need to build regulations yes. around them so there's just so yeah. many things in this 
Um, and it's also create an awareness about snowflake adoption. Yeah, I mean, which is when you adopt a frozen embryo. Yes. Right. So we have, I mean, r sort of numbers, and these are rough estimates ha that there are a million of these children that are frozen on a shelf well, and, and not yet brought to fruition. Pause right there, because when you're talking about handling human life, I mean, it gets back to the sanctity of human life that it is something sacred that you're handling, and that's where I think responsible handling. You don't want just millions of human embryos just out there. Um, it, it starts getting into our, how are they destroyed? Um, how, how are they used for experimentation? Um, how, are, how are they maybe even outside of just maybe a Christian couple struggling with infertility? Um, you get into the um, two men, you know, um, people without that mom-dad framework, um, all kinds of arrangements, you know, what is, again, what is best for the child? So it is kind of this um, technology Pandora's box. And what are the best practices for regarding that as a, because I, I do, you know, regarding that as a, a sacred human life, because I do get disturbed by the fact, the prospect of just having millions of these eggs out there that we are not, you know, it should be treating disturbing. responsibly. It, it yeah. should be disturbing that this is the way the industry works, and and really, there's a lot of different perspectives um, within the Christian Church. Catholics have really strong statements about the use of in vitro fertilization at all. Protestant churches are kind of you know quiet on it or ha or not necessarily you know have said a whole lot. So a lot of people haven't they just haven't digested what does this really mean? When is it life? Should we be engaged in this practice? If we are, how do we do it um, with the understanding? that it's human life. Yes. Um, I've even heard people that say they're not in favor of em embryo adoption because it's fueling the industry. Mm -hmm. I would argue we have a million children out there. Yeah. Um, I don't take that I, position. I yes. say we have a million children. My goodness, we got to pray that folks adopt them. And also, what a beautiful thing, if you can't have children, that you could still experience pregnancy. So I think that's kind of a neat thing that I well, think things happen I mean, in the, the womb between. the alternative is that they may be destroyed. So right. why would you not want to? Right. That's, my, that's, <laughs> yeah. my, you know, that's my very strong take on it. Yeah. Um, so we just have many things. And also, a very unknown piece of all this this is Louisiana actually has a law that protects um, human life at fertilization. And so, and that's been in place for 40 years. Now, my guess is their industry has more parameters around it because of that, because that's actually been there. People just don't know it. It's not talked about. And I don't think it's been challenged. And that's what's really rocking the boat here. But the bottom line is the abortion industry needs it to be the case that these are not human life, right? Or the whole, the, all the chips fall, right? If these are yeah. human life, then certainly what's in the womb is, is human life. Um, but for the pro-life community, we have been very clear that life actually can't just be considered starting at the moment that it's implanted because we have abortifacients that work from, the, you know, there are abortifacient drugs that take human life before it's, it makes implantation on, on the uterus lining impossible. And so we got to be really careful here to not imply that these aren't life because they're outside the womb because then we're literally saying it, those, those it chemicals are life. not taking human life. It yeah. is absolutely human life. Yeah. You know, I was thinking, I did a post this weekend about the March for Life, and I put from protection from the womb to the grave, and I thought, well, we can't say womb to the grave anymore. Now we, I guess we got to say Petri well, this dish is the wild to the thing. grave. Science has <laughs> stepped in. Um, technology, medicine is all stepping in. And I think we're all aware of where this is going, that, you know, there, that we've just sort of backed up our, our ability to um, create human life in different ways. I mean, there's just... The reality is we better know when life begins. That's that's yeah. really the reality. The more science gets involved, the more we better understand what makes human life. Because if we say it's a matter of when, that it doesn't become life until a certain point on the spectrum of maturation, 
You get to pick that point. Is and, it in the womb? Is yeah. it at birth? Is it after birth? Yeah. We, we got to call it and be really clear about that as the pro-life community. And that's what the court got at. It actually had phrasing, whether it's a child does not depend on, quote, developmental stage, physical location, or any other ancillary characteristics. That's, that's quite the statement. It's exactly what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, we, we have got to be crystal clear about this because... If it's not life here, when does it become life, right? This is, a, they're going to argue what? They used to argue, okay, well, maybe at late trimester. Now, the tri you know, the afterbirth, you know, the whole uh, Governor Northam terrible statement about after it's born, yeah, we'll decide yeah. what to do with it. I mean, it takes you down a dangerous path. So I think this is actually a real blessing in disguise. It does tell you what happens when sometimes the law or a court decision jumps in front of where society is because people haven't thought That's about a this. Good point. So this is sometimes when we talk about bringing hearts and minds along at the same time as the law, this is an example where okay, we've now got a court decision that's a little bit in front of how people have thought about this and everybody panics and it creates yeah, a whole and, and I'm we've already seen Republican pe leaders people and are people. taking advantage of this politically because I'm already starting to see pro-abortionists, leftists out there are starting to use this as a panic tool. Absolutely. So that's happening too. And we're seeing a lot of um, politicians that are panicked because obviously in vitro fertilization is highly supported by a lot of people in America, right? So they're immediately panicked. They don't want to be on the wrong side of some large percentage of people that support mm -hmm. this. They don't know how to talk about the issue. They don't know how to nuance it. They don't know how to explain when life begins well. And, you know, so we're already having to deal with kind of a messy mess in the political class. So, yeah. Well, at least among Christians that are involved in trying to represent a biblically minded viewpoint out there, we, we need to understand that this is a human life and handle it with care just to kind of wrap that up. Yes, right. Like, absolutely. Yeah. Well, switching topics, I did want to give our listeners a status update on some of these controversial bills going through the General Assembly right now, especially the ones that affect parental rights. Uh, we've been talking about this measure that basically ties school boards' hands if they want to address the concerns of parents that are reacting to these, you know, explicit books, gratuitous graphic books in their kids' schools. Um, looks like it is going to significantly tie school board members' hands from being feeling like they have full reign to respond to that. Um, and I know we didn't get to talk about the Mama Bear Day event that we had, but you addressed this pretty clearly at our Mama Bear Day press conference. So kind of bring us up to speed on what your point was there and what's happening with this legislation. Yeah, um, so yeah, there's two bills. There's a Senate version by Senator Hashmi and a House version by Delegate Delaney. And at this point in session, they unfortunately have both crossed each chamber and been passed both sides. So they um, are headed to the governor's desk. We'll talk about that in one second, but let me at least first explain kind of what it is. But to your point, basically they are intended, at a minimum, they are intended to have a chilling effect on school boards because they basically say, look, you know, nothing that was passed in the past about sexual explicit material in curriculum, nothing there was intended to permit censoring, basically. And so um, school boards are very much likely to interpret that as we now cannot pull books of any nature out of our libraries or off of the classroom shelves. So that's the concern. And um, I think we've made our objection pretty clear over there, but we're having trouble getting enough votes. Yeah, I really love the way you brought that out in the press conference, that it's it's going to be really easy for school boards, especially ones that maybe are more liberal, they don't want to respond to parents to go, oh, well, there's this code over here now. I really, really can't do anything, um, but also to maybe create some fear in the ones that do. And I don't even understand, I don't understand why we're putting the word 
censorship in our Virginia Code? Because it's so, unless you're going to define that. Right. Like, <laughs> it's super broad. And of course, they're using the word censorship because that's the narrative they want out there that parents want to censor and ban books. No, they want age appropriate books, right? So it's not like they put in the code, hey, this is just to make sure that, you know, the boards stay with age. No, no, no. no. Yeah. They're trying to drive a narrative. This bill plays right into it. So they can keep saying these terrible parents are trying to pull off, and then they'll name books that aren't even the books that the parents are trying to pull off. That's how this rolls in the media. And this bill is just a tool, it's a tool for elections. And yeah. it's a tool for school boards to push back on parents and to hide under, basically. Well, sadly, as you explained, this bill has gone through the processes. It's been passed on both sides, both chambers. And so, you know, by the time that you hear this as a listener, it's probably going to be on the governor's desk or headed there any day. Um, so I think you can assume the governor will be making a decision on this. So what would you encourage our listeners they can do. Yeah, and he's going to have to make a decision quickly. So our listeners really need to get in touch with the governor's office right away and tell them they want to see a veto, that they don't want to see this bill passed. And they need, they need to do it with a sense of urgency. Okay, so tell Governor Yunkin, veto this bill. Is there any way they should refer to it? Or uh, just, just the sexually explicit book banning bill, yeah, whatever you yeah. want to call it. It's, um, you know, they'll know what you mean. Um, but it's Senator Hashmi and Delegate Delaney, if you want to refer to the Patrons. Well, and make sure you're getting our alerts because we do, I'm sure an alert will go out. Clickable about, link. Yeah. Um, so familyfoundation.org slash alerts. It will tell you when things are going to the governor's desk. It will tell you bill numbers. So make sure that you are clued into that and getting those alerts. Well, as we mentioned, our, you know, our Mama Bear Day event was really an awesome thing with just a whole crowd of parents coming out from all across the state. Um, I just want to brag a little bit about this crowd of moms and dads and concerned citizens that really came out to hold their representatives accountable to respecting parental rights. We're going to put some pictures up on the screen here for YouTube viewers. Um, but I encourage everyone, please take a moment to listen to these really emotional and powerful testimonies at the press conference. You know, it's not easy for those parents to get up at the state capitol and share their heart. And that's what they did. And several of them, it's their first time ever sharing their story publicly like that. I thought they did such a fantastic job and there was great media coverage so several articles talked about it and so I think to have faces behind bills you know when parents can get up there and say we want this bill we don't want this bill and and you can actually visually see them here down at the cow that makes a yeah. difference. And their whole overall point was the fundamental right as a parent to guide your child's upbringing, and that includes education, is protected by both the U.S. Constitution and our state constitution. And so they're saying to legislators, you need to respect what's already protected, what's already there, what has already been backed up by numerous courts all the way up to the Supreme Court. So that was kind of the overall theme. Um, but another issue that parents addressed besides this book issue was this problem of drug overdoses happening on school campuses. And in fact, in Loudoun County, School officials waited more than 20 days to notify parents that a really traumatic overdose, multiple overdoses, had happened on school campuses. And, you know, there, there some of these required um, administrating CPR. So as a parent, you want to know if at your kid's campus they've observed this traumatic event, if there's a dangerous drug being passed around that's already resulted in multiple overdoses. There's no reason why they should be dragging their feet. And so this, this proposal, this legislation would address that and they spoke to that uh, let's just listen to Rhonda a parent from our speak up Newport News real quick we are asking actually we're demanding that our parental rights not be ignored 
we are asking for a hot communication. Honest, open, and transparent. As parents, we should be included in our children's lives, not excluded. It is our right and our responsibility. We are asking that Senate Bill 498, parental notification of drug overdoses in our schools be supported. Please support this Senate version of the measure, which has stronger parental notification requirements than the House version. As parents, we should be notified of any school-related overdoses immediately. Give the parents the opportunity to have the conversation with their own children and warn them of the dangers of drugs and the opportunity to help their children deal with any trauma associated with those school overdoses. Well, I just love the way Rhonda just laid it out there as a mom, like, look, when these things happen, I want to be able to warn my child. I want to be able to sit down with my child quickly and talk about dangerous drugs in and around their surroundings. And so I thought she was just ex extremely powerful and just that the, the, they also know that these are traumatic events, right? So these are happening in the lives of people that they may know. And so I just think she laid it out there as, as a parent. I think sometimes administrators just lose touch with what it's like to be a mom in those situations. Yeah, I don't understand the dragging your feet. That it, The fact that we even have to address this, yeah. it seems like it should be common sense, but I think there's so much bureaucracy that comes into play. And also I was hearing maybe there's some um, political correctness with you know not wanting to address the realities that are happening on the campus so we need to kind of get our priorities in order well you gotta remember way. schools want to put their best foot forward right they don't want to talk about the bad news happening within their building to parents yeah. because parents make, might you know need to make other choices and that kind of thing but also i think the parents were trying to be really clear that they want a specific version of the bill and so we needed to talk about that and they did a great job um, because there are two bills um, that both address this problem. Um, there's a Senate version and a House version. And the Senate version is just much stronger. It says, look, within 24 hours, we're going to notify parents. The House version is, we're going to go ahead and set some guidelines. But it's very vague about what the guidelines are. And so it's basically like, you know, we're going to shove this off to the Department of Education, hope they come up with something good. And under our current governor, they might. But I think we've all seen under transgender guidelines, that's the same kind of thing, pass these guidelines. Under a bad governor, they're terrible guidelines. Under a good governor, they're good guidelines. So we really actually want the law to say, hey, we don't just mean generally tell parents eventually, because they eventually told the pa parents in Loudoun 20 mm -hmm. days later. We mean tell them so they can actually act in a, in a manner that is helpful to their family. And so the parents were also just kind of trying to say, hey, do the right thing here, legislators. Pick the right bill. Yeah. Well, I definitely think that the parents' bold statements, the work of our policy team made a real difference here because um, you did have excellent media coverage. We're going to flash that on the screen that I'm sure helped. Um, but there is a weaker version still in play here. So what can people do to help out with this? Yeah, so just when a stronger version and a weaker version kind of crisscross, what ends up happening is it goes to conference. So a couple of people of each chamber kind of meet, and then they try to work out the differences. But it's important that we put pressure on both those conferees, and then ultimately it matters what the governor ends up seeing, and we're going to have to ask the governor to either strengthen it or sign if it's if it's the good one. And so mm -hmm. that's, again, back to your point about people paying close attention to our email alerts because who the conferees are, who those critical usually three to six people are around a bill, um, we'll be able to tell people these are the people we need you to contact, and you know here's their quick yeah. you know, click a button, and here's how you email them. 
So be encouraged, those of you that came out, that su supported those that did by responding to email, we did succeed in the Senate sticking to a stronger version, but now if it ends up at the governor's desk, you're gonna need to know when to respond to that. He can do an amendment too, right? right? He does, yeah, he can amend, he can improve. It just depends what he gets. So yeah. we're gonna ask him to do the best possible for parents. And I think that he's been supportive of parental rights. So that should be a good, easy ask, but we're gonna have to all be ready to do it. Yeah. All right, well, before we move on here, I did want to just bring up the fact that there were some parents that shared their stories that were heartbreaking but didn't get covered pretty much at all um, in the media because the media does just not like to cover, it does not like to cover this transgender issue and what's really happening in the schools with kids being harmed because parents are cut out of the process. And for instance, there was Doug, a Fairfax dad who shared his story for the first time publicly in this venue, this press conference, and you didn't see it really covered anywhere. Let's just hear from him for a minute. Good morning, I'm uh, Doug Bottoms from Fairfax. Just wanna warn parents about what's happening in, in some of our schools. Um, my wife and I, we have two sons in the Virginia public uh, education system. We chose to opt our sons out of the family life education curriculum because those are conversations that we as parents prefer to have with our sons. Um, in November, the school facilitated a Veterans Day event where a transgender parent volunteered to read to a group of first graders. This uh, group of first graders included my six-year-old son. While in front of the class, the transgender discussed aspects of his transition from a man to a woman, i.e. how he used to be a boy with short hair, that he used to be one of the students' students' dad, but now he was the student's second mother. To reiterate, we opted out of these types of discussions the school having these types of discussions with our children. We opted out in writing. So did several other parents. We didn't learn about this from the school. We learned about it from our six-year-old son at the din dinner table. I think what's really telling about his story is the fact that Doug and his wife actually had opted their child out of family life education. They had said, look, we're going to do everything we can to have these conversations at home. So they had done the proactive thing and they still had to deal with this, this LGBT stuff in their child's classroom and still had to sort of find out about it backhanded from their kid at the, yeah. the conversation, not from the school. Yeah, at the dinner table. So you got this first grader that's, I mean, think about this as a parent. A, a, a guest comes in your child's classroom, is apparently appears to be a man dressed as a woman and is talking about to how this transition is made to, you know, first graders. I mean, and you don't have that courtesy of even having the, the ability to prepare your child psychologically for that conversation. And best case scenario, best case scenario is the school didn't know that was going to happen, didn't intend for that to happen. But you still know that something very big has been introduced to these six-year-olds. Mm -hmm. You need to notify the families immediately that, hey, this conversation happened. You're going to want to follow up on this. Okay, worst case scenario, they did know and they understand they don't even care. I mean, you know, we don't know. But the point is, parents immediately need to be looped in that these kind of sensitive topics have been addressed. Yeah, and it does reflect this larger problem that just isn't getting addressed, that there is indoctrination happening in the schools and the parents aren't being included. So that we're not gonna give up on these measures that we have supported like Sage's Law that address a lot of these issues. We don't have to go into a lot of that right now, but we're yeah. that's why we keep pressing for these things. Yeah, I, I don't think it can be said enough that parents have to be so heads up with what's going on with their children in public schools because we're still at a point where we're constantly pushing on the schools to get the parents involved, to tell the parents of, of what's going on. 
And I do just want to throw out there as Christians, you know, we strongly believe because we've come from a perspective of being redeemed in our own lives, our, our faith in Jesus. You know, we have that compassion mindset that every person, every child in front of us should be treated with respect, yeah. with compassion, because they, they are God's creation. It doesn't matter Absolutely. what's going on with that person, how they're identifying. They are God's creation, a human being, like we talked about earlier. Um, so I just want to point out that what I was hearing from the parents in this, it's not anger toward that individual mm-hmm. guest or the child involved in the classroom with that guest. It's, it's that they feel so helpless being cut out, even manipulated by the school, like choosing not to share certain things. Well, think about how many parents might even want to teach their child how to be compassionate in that moment, right? Like that's a great learning opportunity, not just about the issue, but literally about the person, how to be a, a, how to express Jesus's love, even when you encounter someone that believes something very, very different about their life. Yeah. And so, you know, just with the, the irony of the way it's put out there, making parents feel like the aggressors when they're trying to actually protect their kids and have involvement. I think Nick Freitas in his clip, um, that yeah. he, he encapsulated this well in the press conference. And let's just hear a clip of him sharing that. Now, some people will say, don't you think that's a little bit inappropriate to assume the intentions of others? Really? Because they don't seem to think it's wrong to assume our intentions. Because every time we bring up concerns about parental issues, it's like, no, 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 you're just bigots, right? There's something wrong with you, and now the state is going to improve that, right? They're going to correct that in your children because obviously you can't be trusted as parents in order to convey the sort of values and education that your child should have. Now, I will say there are ample examples of history where the state decides that it will play the primary role with respect to the care, upbringing, and education of children. But none of those states exist in free societies. I mean, obviously, Nick's passion comes out because he was the sponsor of Sage's bill this year. So he really knows this issue. And he really was frustrated about the unfairness of Democrats and how they handled, you know, they're in the majority party. So they get to create the rules around how Sage's law was introduced and felt like it was not given uh, adequate time for Michelle, Sage's mom, Mm -hmm. to be able to testify. Um, And so um, but we did we were able to give her a platform at Mama Bear press conference, which is really great. Well, it's that time again. Time for our Inconceivable Moments Award. This is where we're featuring examples of the absolute lunacy and craziness that happens when cultural leaders try to give guidance completely apart from biblical principles. And we're calling this the Liberals' Most Inconceivable Moments Award. Inconceivable! Well, one thing we didn't get a chance to mention earlier when we were talking about the Virginia March for Life was this incident that happened that has gone viral on social media since then, generated some national headlines. Victoria, did you want to kind of bring us up to speed on what happened here? Yeah, so it was a fantastic march, but there was a disruption. So there was an attempt to disrupt this march and to intimidate people, really, is what it was. So um, a lot of folks have seen the video. It was put out by Students for Life and then sort of redone on libs of TikTok and also Daily Wire and all these mm-hmm. g- groups started talking about it. Um, but I guess we should play the clip for our viewers first. So, of course, in this, you can see what appears to be a pretty muscular man carrying transgender banners, basically ramming through um, a crowd of student marchers. And you can see him deliberately bumping people as he runs through trying to, you know, make a scene. 
Yeah, those poor students, um, because I think it was mostly Students for Life, a lot of our Speak Up team members, I think, were out there, um, you know, that he was running into. And you could hear the students when all this is happening. They were, when this happened, they were holding signs like, I love life and chanting, uh, we are the pro-life generation. Thankfully, I don't think anyone was seriously hurt, so I'm thankful for that. It didn't stop the march at all. Um, Everyone just kept right on going. Um, So our folks, you know, handled that graciously. Um, But, you know, I think this person was eventually arrested and charged. I think it was disorderly conduct. But now that it's made the news, I, I think we can just start out by saying I'm glad there was some accountability, you know, that he was charged. Uh, But we don't want to lose sight of the fact that obviously this is a person that is suffering to do something like this, right? I mean, you've got to be in some kind of anguish, internal anguish, um, you know, and I think it's important as Christians to look at these things. We're not naive, but we're realistic with some humility that we've had our own life anguish and struggles, and we know what it is to be delivered by Jesus to have freedom in our life to experience the overwhelming love of God. And so we do want to look at this with compassion to be praying for this person to know that overwhelming love of God, because that we wouldn't be in the place where we are today if we didn't have that freedom in our own lives. Um, But at the same time, like I said, we don't want to be naive. And I think it's fair to point out that this kind of illustrates, it kind of reveals a narrative Um, that's been going on, you know, in mainstream media, it it kind of exposes some of the narrative that's out there. Yeah, there's no question that I think the general mainstream media puts forward a pretty one-sided approach. You know, the idea is it's, it's kind of like there's always somehow that transgender individuals are always cast as victims, right? This is just the way the media puts it forward and that the parents and the Christians and even the pro-lifers that are praying at a clinic or something like that, they are always sort of seen as the violent terrorists. You know, this has just been the narrative. Um, and and I think that's where we saw Delegate Freitas making some of his comments earlier was sort of along that. But the reality is that radical activists like this are on all sides of issues and certainly um, on the left side and that many times are actually the ones doing the harassing and 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 disruption. Yeah, and that, that needs to be fairly acknowledged. I do have to comment. I was thinking it's these narratives are out there. It's like you're watching a bad B movie when all the characters are one dimensional, you know, and they're just they're this way or they're that. And that's that's not the world that we live in. And that's where you run into this irony of just this one sided they're Christians harassing, but but really it's actually a lot of times Christians getting harassed. So I just gotta have some balance here. Yeah, and I mean, I, I, I think we have to talk about the fact that, you know, th- he's actually, you know, in this case, you know, throwing some, you know. Clocking people. Yeah, yeah, he's definitely trying to physically make his way through the crowd is the nicest way to put it. And, you know, and you just, y- you got to compare this to, for example, these pro-lifers that, um, you know, that we've talked about on this show before where they're just outside, um, you know, singing or praying and they have the potential of like 10 or 11 years of prison time coming with no physical anything happening outside there, whether you disagree with them blocking the facility or whether they were, there was nothing physical happening there. And Mm -hmm. so it's just amazing to me the the irony between these situations. And I don't mean that in a positive way. I just. Right. Good point. Well, I do think it's important just for the overall perspective to point out how peaceful these marches have been. I mean, we have had, as I mentioned, six of these marches for life. They have always been peaceful. 
you know, we've never had any issue. It's just been a wonderful, joyous day. And even with this little incident, um, it was just such a wonderful experience for everybody involved. So I'm thankful for that, um, that there is a consistent record of pro-lifers presenting peacefully through um, an event like this. Absolutely. Um, and I think if folks haven't been able to come to a march that hasn't been part of your practice, I think you would find just an amazing, you hear people singing, you hear people. I, I would really encourage folks, if this wasn't your year, you, mark, mark that on your calendar for yeah. next year and we'll, we'll let you know when that pops up. Because I will say, um, before really, really getting involved in this movement, I didn't consider myself a marcher kind right. of person. <laughs> Me neither. Yeah, so I, I went out and did it and it's just, there's something about the joy of believers walking together and sharing a redemptive perspective and speaking it out loud. And it's a loving thing. So it, it really changed my heart that way. But um, well, I think a great way to send this out this week is just a reminder of that, the power of joining together, joining our voices together, walking together, being that visual demonstration of God's unconditional love and what that looks like. So we're just going to share with you a few clips of the singing and the praying that we enjoyed last week, the Virginia March for Life, and we hope it encourages you as much as it did us. See you next time. Shout, let the baby live. <laughs> Hallelujah. Let us pray. Dear God of the Bible, God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords, oh God, our Alpha and Omega, beginning and the ending, we praise you today. We thank you for your goodness, your kindness, and your tender mercy. Thank you for this beautiful day where we can gather on the behalf of life. We know that life comes from you. Give us the power, the strategy, the wisdom that we need to continue to fight for the most precious amongst us, the very least of these. Now, Lord, we pray for our opposition. We pray, oh God, that revival break out in the legislature and that souls and babies and lives are saved in the name of Jesus. And may your blessings continue on the saints. Ever cause your face to shine upon us. The blessings of God be upon each one of you today. May the Lord keep you and may the Lord bless you. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Thank God. Amen and amen. for this March for Life. At the same time, the church is making its annual pilgrimage through the Lenten season. As we hear in the scriptures at this time of year, as Christians, we are called to turn away from selfishness and sin, to turn in faith, hope, and love toward the Lord of life. Father, we gather today to advocate for the respect of human life, for the protection of the dignity of the human person. We are ready to give of our time, our treasure, to assist women in crisis pregnancies, to assist them to bring their children into this world. We are ready to persevere in prayer for those who are lost, confused, and also prayers for those who oppose us, that all hearts might be set on you and on your grace offered to us in the sacrifice of your son on the cross. 
Father, we ask you for grace today for all those who are entrusted with the responsibility of leadership in our commonwealth, that they have the courage to turn away from the darkness of the culture of death and turn toward the light of the gospel of life. We ask all this through Christ our Lord. Amen. The light from above, from the mountains, through the prairies, to the oceans, white with foam. God bless America, my home sweet My home sweet home.